I write about the things I am learning about and I write what I need to learn. You're right, I never waited for the day that I was an expert to start writing. I just decided I was gonna do this and I did it. Just for today Then you will find another way With every breath you throw away Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Migrations, a podcast about creative and political Asians and their story of migration. I'm your host, Nisha Modi. I have been having so much fun with this podcast. These conversations are bringing up topics and questions that truly explore the intricacies of being defined as Asian. And I wouldn't be able to do this podcast without your help. Because of my Patreon patrons, I've gotten partial support for the editing and creative voices that help me get this going and helps me to continue to make it. I am so glad that I was able to center Asians for the behind-the-scenes work that goes into making a podcast, and not just for what you hear. So please, pretty please, consider visiting www.patreon.com migrations to help me to continue to create migrations. Anything helps. You can even get a book or a self-care package depending on how much you're able to give. You're welcome to give $1 a month or even a one-time contribution. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Today I'm talking with Khadija of Brown Girl Biz on Instagram. Khadija is a Pakistani woman who lived in Karachi, Pakistan as a child, moved to Toronto, moved back to Karachi for a couple years before moving back to Canada. Khadija is passionate about helping other children of immigrants navigate society, especially entering the job market. She also enjoys writing poetry and comedy. Khadija is starting her own podcast, Brown Girl Biz, and blogs on Instagram at Brown Girl Biz. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, Khadija. Thanks for having me, Nisha. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, I actually just finished a meditation session. I know you're big on meditation. So I was like, oh, I better tell Nisha. Yeah, definitely. Tell me more about it. So it was a meditation that my friend gave me for my birthday. Mm-hmm. You just like wrote on a piece of paper some affirmations. So I read the affirmations to myself. It was a very nice and thoughtful gift. That is a really sweet gift. I'm starting to like gifts like that more where it's kind of more about an experience and self-care. I like that too. Very cool. I just wanted to talk a little bit more um, about your background. You moved back and forth between Pakistan and Canada while you were growing up. (laughs) So how has this affected your identity and the work you do? I'm the child of immigrants, obviously, but growing up, I struggled to have a sense of rootedness because of all the moving back and forth. So lived in Karachi as a young child, then we moved to Toronto, then we moved back to Karachi, then we moved to Vancouver, BC, then we moved to California, 
then we moved back to Karachi and then we moved to Toronto. So I went to a lot of schools. Wow. Yeah. I had a lot of self-reliance as a child and I just read books and I knew how to keep myself entertained because moving to different schools so much, you don't um, retain the same friendships. But I'm actually quite lucky that I'm still friends with one person from elementary school and I'm still close to quite a few people from high school, the high school that I went to here in Ontario. Wow, yeah, I can totally see how kind of being uprooted a lot, you struggle with how to be rooted and how that can encourage and foster more self-reliance. I mean, I think it can also foster chaos and it just kind of depends on the person. Or a little bit of both. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I could see that. So in terms of being self-reliant, I feel like that really aligns with your business model, I guess, for Brown Girl Biz. So can you talk a little bit more about what that is? I never thought of it that way, but now that you mention it, (laughs) there is quite a bit of that incorporated. I'm basically a one-woman show, so there's the self-reliance there. I recently did a collaboration with a theater here in Toronto called Theater Pass Mirai. They asked me to interview one of the lead actresses for a play they were putting on. And I just grabbed my selfie stick and found a wall in the city. And we filmed the interview and I came home and I edited it on iMovie. And so I think self-reliance is a huge theme in my life. And I think a lot of other immigrants can relate to that. When it comes to the business model I have in general, I write about career development from the perspective of a rookie, of a young person just starting out in their career. And I, for my podcast, interview other women of color about their career journeys because honestly, the mentorship aspect, because Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear advice, but I also wanted to share it. So I decided it would be a good idea if I just recorded the conversations I had with the people I admired and then broadcast it for other people to learn and to share that knowledge. I've always honestly been very impressed with you, as you're saying, as a young person, uh, uh, straight out of university, correct? I graduated a year and a half ago now. Yeah, to take this initiative, start your blogging, start a podcast, That is really, really impressive. And I could see other people saying, well, I don't know anything about entrepreneurship or about starting a business or whatever. So how can I actually talk about it? But I think that's where the self-reliance comes in. That's kind of the whole point. Maybe you don't know, but you're going to try to find out and share that knowledge with everybody. And that's okay. I write about the things I am learning about and I write what I need to learn. Mm -hmm. And you're right, I never waited for the day that I was an expert to start writing. I just decided I was going to do this and I did it. Yeah, that's super cool. What's something recently that you've learned something new? What I learned today was this management technique or sort of this technique developed by organizational psychologists called the reciprocity ring. And what they do is Everyone gathers in a meeting and each person stands up and states what they need, something that they need. For example, they need someone to help them with a presentation they're doing. And then someone in the circle offers to help Mm -hmm. or everybody else tries to brainstorm for this person. And this reciprocity ring has actually been adapted to 
uh, non-business purposes as well. So a group of people might get together and one person might say, I need help finding a job in this field. And then someone else in the circle may know of an opening. Someone else mm-hmm. in the circle may offer to read that person's resume. Another person in the circle may offer to make an introduction to someone in that field. And when I learned about that, I thought this is amazing. This can be used in so many places. So many people can benefit from this idea because every single person is asking for a favor. You don't feel needy and you don't feel embarrassed to ask because it's all about reciprocity. Yeah, that sounds really, really impressive. It kind of reminds me not just of collaboration, but also of community, which is really, really important to have both elements. Exactly. It is very community-based. So I was surprised that the first applications were in the corporate world. I think there's a movement for the corporate world to become more collaborative, Mm -hmm. um, which I find really interesting. Yeah, I definitely have seen that too. And I think it's tricky because in the corporate world, collaboration, well, I guess the purpose of a lot of corporate cultures is ultimately going to be profit. And Mm -hmm. using collaboration to that end just kind of feels a little, I don't know, disingenuous or not authentic, at least to me. But I do think that it's really great to be used in a more authentic community setting, just like helping other people out, you know? I think even in a corporate setting, it does build teamwork and Mm -hmm. it does involve colleagues helping each other out. So I think that's pretty important, especially if you feel like you're handling a huge workload on your own. So I think it does have its place there, but applications in a community setting, I see just boundless applications of that. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Teamwork, I think in any setting is powerful and beneficial, but I do think that in a community setting, it can foster the type of collaboration that grows beyond its initial intention. Exactly. It can develop into deeper relationships. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to ask you, something you had told me on the side before, is that you had also identified as Maimon. Can you talk about what that is and how that affects you and your identity? So Maimon, spelled M-E-M-O-N, Maimons are a very small community originating in Sindh on what is now the Pakistani side of the border. Mm -hmm. Records vary, but around the 15th or the 18th century, they uh, mass migrated to Gujarat, to an area called Katiwar in Gujarat. Then 1947, my family, at least my branch of the community, migrated back to Sindh, to Karachi, Pakistan. But there are Maimans everywhere in the world. There are Maimans in South Africa. There are Maimans in Sri Lanka. We're actually known for being a business community. So I don't think it's a coincidence (laughs) that I have such an interest in not only entrepreneurship, but also intrapreneurship and just that entrepreneurial spirit. I don't think it's a coincidence. I have a pretty strong feeling I know where it comes from. Yeah. And it's interesting because not only has your personal migration bounced you around to different locations, but historically your migration story with your ancestors has done the same. Exactly. So ancestrally, that's a double diaspora uh, from from Sint to Gujarat and then from Gujarat back to since. So double diaspora for my ancestors and for myself, also double diasporic, triple diasporic, because I do identify as Pakistani, but a strong 
part of me is Maimon. We were talking about this earlier. Maimon speak a dialect that is a combination of Sindhi and Gujarati. And I think that is very allegorical for what the Maimon identity is. Mm. Is we're pretty mixed culturally. There's something very beautiful about that. A dialect was created to reflect the identity and to reflect the cultural identity of the people who spoke it. Yeah, definitely. And for those of you out there that don't know, I am also Gujarati. I'm Hindu, so that is different in terms of religion, as well as language, because my parents speak Gujarati. Um, And I was telling Khadija that I never even heard of this, even though I'm Gujarati, because it is such a small community. So it was really cool to learn about these different areas and communities and even like a combination like you said and you'd said that like it really reflects both Gujarat and the Sindh cultures for those people out there that may not know what that means can you expand upon that a little bit that's something I'm still trying to figure out for myself it's interesting we do dance Dandia which I Mm. think is a very common dance in Gujarat as well if I'm not mistaken Mm. with the stick Mm -hmm. Um, dance Yes, the stick dance. And it does sound, Mimni does sound very similar to Sindhi. I remember because I grew up in Sindh, in Karachi, we had a lot of Sindhi embroidery around the house. Mm. But when it comes to Sindh, I think it's been retained in the language, but because it was so long ago, the 15th century, I can't trace any aspects of Maimon culture that have their roots in Sindh. Okay, interesting. But I'm sure if I studied it more in depth, I would get there. It is a goal of mine to learn Mimni. I don't speak it. I do understand it, however. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's super important to do what we can. It's so hard with all this migration and the dominant cultures we're exposed to to retain languages that are lesser known. And a lot of the culture gets lost when the language is lost as well. Yes, that's very too. They're very intertwined and codependent on each other. I wanted to ask you, you had talked about entrepreneurship versus entrepreneurship, and I have never heard that. Can you talk more about what entrepreneurship is? So I'm also still learning what that is. So entrepreneurship is someone who works within an organization that they are not the owner of, but they have that spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. I would say entrepreneurship is maybe most common in startup cultures. I see. Oh, that's cool. So it's in for innovation. Or I think in for maybe being in the organization, ah, but okay. I guess you could, you could say both. Maybe both. Hey, it works, maybe right? Probably <laughs> both works for both. Yeah, because it would be kind of weird if it was like innopreneurship. It's like one too many syllables or something. <laughs> Okay, that's really cool. Well, I think with entrepreneurship, no matter what, whether you're starting on your own or you're in a startup or you're just that creative, super creative, innovative person in a larger organization, that innovation is always important for the progress of any idea or entity. I would say that if I belong to a company, I would really want the CEO to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I would want the CEO to have the perspective of the business's best interests in mind, which I think, or I would hope a lot of CEOs do. I think that's where the entrepreneurship becomes really important. It happens at every level, but in management, I think it can have the most impact usually. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, leadership really is where a whole system is shaped. Mm -hmm. So when it comes from the top, it kind of spreads 
as a system-wide idea, basically, that everyone sees what the values of that culture are. Khadija and I did an Instagram Live together <laughs> where we talked about money and we talked about how to have money without money having you. Yeah. And um, which was Khadija's name for the Instagram Live, which I thought was genius. And the reason we called it this is because I think we feel ashamed sometimes to make money and also potentially be anti-capitalist or not believe in that system as much or see capitalism as a system that's harmful. And I think the word entrepreneurship also kind of has that vibe to it. It's not something, honestly, even until the last couple months that I wanted to ever call myself. And I still don't necessarily call myself that, but I definitely hated that word before. Specifically, I hated it because when I was in the online dating world, I would see people that were like, actors, producers, entrepreneurs. And I just kind of wondered what that meant, especially as living in Los Angeles. You're just dabbling in everything. But I did want to ask you, what do you think about that word and using it in a way that isn't just about capitalizing on other people or other ideas or resources? Firstly, I think the people you probably came across on those online dating apps <laughs> were the entrepreneurs. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that's also a term I learned recently. So there's a difference between a entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And it's exactly how it sounds. A entrepreneur is someone who is more interested in the flashiness of the title rather than the actual process of having their own business. Whereas an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily need to call themselves an entrepreneur to be one. You're an entrepreneur if you have your own business and you run your own business and to speak to your other question which was how can you have money without money having you and how can you have an entrepreneurial spirit without causing harm I think it can be incredibly difficult but I also think that entrepreneurship decentralizes capitalism in a lot of ways. You think about it this way, having smaller businesses rather than these huge conglomerates is actually supporting people in your community. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I do like to do on my page is promote smaller businesses. So if I do go to a workshop that someone in the community hosts, if they're teaching something, I do always make sure to take a picture and to do a little write-up for my page because I want smaller local businesses and smaller local entrepreneurs to be recognized because really they're decentralizing capitalism is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. They're not feeding into all these very large private entities owning and gobbling everything up basically. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I think that's the wonderful thing about small businesses is that they can be local and that in itself is community driven and community oriented. Exactly. Very nice. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, I always see on your Instagram page, really cool pictures that are more South Asian inspired. And it's a really cool vibe that you have, I think, on your page with talking about like entrepreneurship, but also really like kind of rad, cool pictures of women, South Asian women. So what specifically about women of color do you think is really important to center and talk about when we're talking about entrepreneurship? I think we're an underserved community and underrepresented. And I didn't really see anybody else 
talking about it in podcast form. So mm-hmm. the idea for the podcast actually started before the Instagram. I was listening to career development podcasts and I realized that there was nothing for young people of color, nothing out there for young women of color. And I decided I wasn't going to wait until I became an expert to talk about the topic. Mm-hmm. I was just going to enlist people that I thought were knowledgeable and successful in their careers. And I was going to ask them about it. So really the entire thing just happened from me needing to create something that I needed that also happens to serve other people. Yeah, I think that that's a beautiful way to start any entrepreneurial or start any idea. It's basically going to be driven by your interests and passion and desire to share that with others. So I really do love that. And I commend you on your page. It's really, really aesthetically pleasing, but also very motivational. Well, I also think if you need something, the chances are someone else probably needs that too. So you might as well follow that. And even if it doesn't become profitable, you will at least have learned skills. You will at least have gained knowledge and you will at least have created it for yourself, even if you don't necessarily profit off of it, or even if it doesn't take off in terms of following, if you can help one person or one person gets motivation or inspiration from what you're doing, then I think you've, you've done a lot. I think we're very hung up on follower count and it's so much more about quality than quantity. I agree. I think value is not just about quantity, just like you said. And I think sometimes with the competitive nature of Instagram, just trying to get to a certain number of followers, especially trying to get that 10K so you can have people swipe up on your stories or whatever it is, it doesn't engender collaboration that much. It's just, or if it does engender collaboration, it's more to this end of quantity instead of like quality of relationships with other people that you meet on the platform. Yeah. So I like that you say that because regardless, it's a learning experience and you're going to get something out of it. I mean, if it weren't for Instagram, you and I would not have done the Instagram live. We would not have met. We would not be talking right now. Right. Exactly. And another thing I really liked that we talked about on the Instagram live is how being an entrepreneur or having money is also about honoring our ancestors. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So especially for women of color, we are the descendants of women who oftentimes did not have the right to earn money, did not have the right to keep money, and gave a lot of labor that they did not receive compensation for. So to be in this position with a cell phone that has an app like Instagram and has a podcast app where you can listen to us, you're in a position that your ancestors dreamed of and prayed for you. And I think it's really important not to take that as a burden, but to see that as a real gift and to just appreciate that we are in a position of privilege, even if as women of color, we may not be in a position of privilege relative to other people. We are in a position of privilege relative to our own ancestors, which is still something and we've made a lot of progress. Oh, definitely. I think that that is so, so important. You know, I feel like there's this narrative as being a child of immigrants where 
we almost have this guilt, not all of us, but a lot of us, um, that, you know, our parents work so hard, they sacrifice so much, and we owe it to them. And for the longest time, it kind of bothered me, or almost like it bothered me that, okay, they sacrificed, they had a really hard life, and now I have to do this for them. That's fucked up. Why do I got to do that, you know? But now I don't see it that way as much as I see it as an opportunity for me to heal and feel happier it's like I'm kind of their answers. And I put this in one of my posts on Instagram that we are their answers, the ones that they needed. And we can change these generational, these ways of thinking, generational difficulties, all these sacrifices to our benefit and then to the benefit of our community. It's like a continued migration, right? And we are definitely the answer to generational prayers. And the reason I write primarily for daughters of immigrants is because so many of us have felt that way I felt that way it's felt like a huge burden that my parents have sacrificed everything for me Mm -hmm. and I may not live up to the image of success that they wanted me to have but then I just remind myself that I'm still 24 and I (laughs) hopefully have time to get there that's why I write for children of immigrants because it's a very unique position we're in in which our parents are selfless saints who have sacrificed everything. And they're also expert tour guides of the guilt trip. So (laughs) we live in sort of a dual reality, dual existence. And I actually think that part of the journey of being the child of immigrants is not seeing our parents as these selfless saints and not seeing them as these guilt trippers, but really just meeting them as humans because they're human beings. That's the challenge and that's the gift of being a child of immigrants. Yeah, I love how you said that. First of all, yes, you are 24. You have lots of time. (laughs) We all do. And second of all, I really like that you talked about how they're humans too. I think what you had mentioned before in terms of living up to this image of what they want versus us answering their prayers aren't always the same thing. I think the image of what they want is the image of the successful immigrant story, where in the United States, they call it the American dream. I don't know if they have a parallel name for Canada, but right, that idea. The North American dream. The North American dream. There you go. Yeah. What that image is, has been carved essentially by North America, what that looks like, right? I think their prayers are really for us to be happy and for us to define that. And while, you know, maybe they consciously and maybe their ego doesn't always agree we can define that for ourselves. And also, like you said, see them as humans, see them as people that essentially just want us to be happy and they themselves want to be happy. And I think knowing what makes ourselves happy is one of the hardest things to do, especially when you are going through different types of migration and diaspora. There's a lot of trauma that's involved there. You don't have time as an immigrant to resolve this trauma right away. But we can do that by the actions that we take and the ways we take care of ourselves. Immigrant parents want one thing, and that is for us to be stable and to Mm -hmm. be financially abundant and stable. And that can look very different for many different people. And also, I mean, the economy changes so rapidly, whereas maybe 10 decades ago here in Ontario, picking a career as a lawyer or a teacher would have been an extremely stable decision Mm -hmm. that's no longer the case there's a surplus of teachers and lawyers in southern Ontario so if you go into those fields it's very likely that it will be a while before you find 
stable and gainful employment in that field. So it looks very different. And I know the immigrant trifecta is always doctor, lawyer, engineer. (laughs) The economy doesn't always accommodate that. At least in Ontario, lawyers aren't really having that same level of, what would be the word for it? Same level of openings, I guess. Yeah, or demand, basically. Same, Same demand in the job market, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that that changes. And I liked how you said that that's the one thing they want is for us to not struggle financially and have a sense of stability. And I think that's what any parent would want for their kid. And then they hope that those jobs match it. I think that then it's up to us to see how and what we can do for ourselves that match our passions and our desires and our authentic selves. It doesn't always you know, end up matching what our parents want. Sometimes it does, which is great. But I think that is, like you said, that's the constant struggle with kind of resolving that with our parents and with ourselves too. Or you get the day job that gives you stability and then in your spare time, you build up a side hustle that can eventually support you full time. Because I don't think necessarily the desire for stability is a bad thing. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> it's a very good thing. It, it just, <laughs> yeah. Valid. yeah, definitely. And I mean, that kind of the position I'm in, I'm in a full-time job yeah. that I enjoy, but I also have this kind of side hustle with the podcast and with my coaching where I know for a fact That if that and my writing and everything were to give me the salary equivalent, you know, of where I am with my full-time job, I would totally be supported by my mom. I don't doubt Mm -hmm. that at all. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's all they want. All they want is the financial, they want us to live lives of abundance and financial security. I think that's a really beautiful desire for a parent to have for their kid. It just manifests in so many different ways for different people. Yeah. And I think just living between two cultures, it manifests in a lot of different ways. And that itself is its own struggle, (laughs) which could be its own podcast probably. So yeah, there's a lot to reckon with there. I just wanted to actually close out with one question. What would you say in terms of advice for that young woman of color who is struggling, maybe with kind of the struggles that we were just talking about, didn't know where to turn to or who to get advice from or what to do? in regards to the direction of their career, you know, confronting their parents, anything, what type of advice would you give them? There's so many things that (laughs) I would tell her. I would say, make sure that your circle of friends is very strong, very stable, because you are the average of the five people you hang out with. So make sure that you're with supportive people constantly who cheer you on and make sure that you cheer them on as well. I'm very lucky to have friends who are extremely supportive of me. I would say at least how I felt in university was I really thought the word networking was a dirty word. I thought the word money was a dirty word. I was a little bit scared of those things as well. But what I've learned is it's important to change our attitude towards those things. Money is a tool. Money is a form of freedom. And networking is just a way to connect with people. And networking will get way easier for you when you are eventually clear about who you are and what you do. Because I think the hardest thing about networking is when you are at the beginning of your career, when people ask, oh, who are you? What do you do? And you really have no answer for that because you're still a student, you're still figuring it out. Once you figure it out, then you can actually have a point of interest with another person, a point of conversation. Instead of thinking of networking as a 
oh, I'm going to get things from other people. Think of it as I'm going to go to this event or I'm going to talk to this person about something we have in common, about an interest we have in common that happens to be professionally related. So I think that makes networking a lot less scary and a lot less gross. Networking does not have to be sleazy. If you bring your own authenticity to it, it will not be sleazy and people will be able to detect that authenticity. I think that's great advice. Kind of what you were talking before about Instagram too, and this idea of just getting lots of followers and having these, you know, quantitative outcome measures, similar to networking, right? You're just going into a situation and meeting people and seeing how you connect. And that can be so beautiful. You will meet people and discover things that you never knew and you don't know what you don't know. So you might as well try. You don't have to work the whole room. You don't have to talk to every single person there. Mm -hmm. You can have a conversation with one person about something that you genuinely find interesting that they genuinely find interesting also. And that will be considered a success. Definitely. Wow. Thank you so much, Khadija. (laughs) I really, really enjoyed this conversation. It's gotten me to think about a lot of things in terms of my own family, and it's making me actually reflect back to my time as a new graduate and the things I thought and what I wish I knew at that time. And I'm so, so glad that you are providing this resource for young women of color that might not have an idea about what they want to do or just want some guidance. So thank you for your service and thank you for being on this show. And thank you so much for having me. I always pretend that I'm being interviewed by like Oprah in the shower. (laughs) Now is the time when somebody actually did want to interview me. So I'm so happy that I got to do that. Oh my God. I love that. I think that might use, try to use that shower technique. You're teaching me so much today. (laughs) I always pretend I'm being interviewed. I don't think I'm the only person who does this. I think I actually do that more in the car when I'm driving, which is very dangerous because everyone probably sees me, but you know, they don't see me for too long. <laughs> I usually uh, just have music blasting, but that's yeah, I, true. Just, I just have like my hairbrush has a mic and I'm like, yes, Oprah. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, I want all of the listeners out there <laughs> to imagine yourself doing that in the shower. I think public speaking, no matter what, is a really important skill to have because you end up presenting yourself in lots of different ways, no matter what you do. It doesn't have to just be an interview or a podcast, right? It could be any type of presentation, any type of relationship, even with networking, your public speaking skills and how you relate to someone else through your voice is extremely, extremely important. So turning that into something that is critical, but I am also loving that image. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Nisha. I want to dig into this whole entrepreneur term. I still feel a little uneasy using that terminology because of the associations I think about. I think about startup culture, and I honestly think of straight white dudes in this entrepreneurship role that Khadija talked about. I think it's this idea of taking and having an ego to produce capital that has always permeated my mind and made me feel pretty icky. I realize that saying business owner doesn't bother me at all. And entrepreneurship is kind of the same thing, but it's positioned in a way that has white supremacist roots and privileges a bootstrap mentality instead of recognizing structural inequalities. Business owner sounds more like the result of work to set up a business rather than an individualistic and ego-driven way of fulfilling the North American dream. 
Lately, as I've been perusing the gram, I have seen some amazing women of color putting themselves out there, educating people through courses and workshops, and it made me realize that there are so many amazing outcomes that can come from our labor. Call it entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, business ownership, whatever you want, but it has a different flavor. I see people of color from all gender identities finding ways to harness social media to organize and promote social justice, equity, and liberation. And they're doing it in ethical ways. They aren't trying to sell you something out of a scarcity mindset, and they're encouraging you to opt out and discover what is authentic to you and how you can work with others to make these things happen. This isn't about partnership as much as it is about interdependence. As Adrienne Marie Brown states in Emergent Strategy, we need to move from competitive ideation, trying to push our individual ideas, to collective ideation, collaborative ideation. It isn't about having the number one best idea, but having ideas that come from and work for more people. When we speak of systemic change, we need to be fractal. Fractals, a way to speak of patterns we see, move from the micro to macro level. The same spirals on seashells can be found in the shape of galaxies. We must create patterns that cycle upwards. Our friendships and relationships are systems. Our communities are systems. Let us practice upwards. So I want to give a shout out to some rad accounts that I love that harness this idea of being collaborative and cycling upwards as a community. I want to give a shout out to Sharon Holmes, Tiffany Wong Art, Teach and Transform, Asians Do Therapy, Rad Reads 94, Decolonizing Therapy, Dr. Rosales Mesa, Marielle Bouquet, Reflections with Aparna, Suhad, Ravidip Kaur, Desiree Attaway, Asians for Mental Health, Wagatwe, Britt Hawthorne, Milana Snow, The Fat Sex Therapist, Siruth K. Chawla, Yumi Sakugawa, The Witch's Muse, Witch Doctor Poet, Cassandra Solano. These are some amongst so many, and I'll include all of these great accounts in the show notes. Now it's time to thank my Patreon patrons, who have pledged $20 or more a month. Thank you to my brother and to Dahlia Gahan, and also thank you to Tiffany for creating the cover art. You can find her on Instagram at Tiffany Wong Art. Thank you to Shin Kawasaki, who has an awesome new EP out. I've listened to it on repeat several times. Find him on all streaming platforms as Shin Kawasaki, one word. And last but not least, thank you to Akriti Kundu for editing this podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening to Migrations. Migrations.